The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Everyone is a perfect parent until they have children. At that point, they realize they have no idea what in the world they are doing. Now, you might not agree with my parenting, but recently I allowed my son to watch the movie Jurassic Park with me. Now, I remember going to the movie theater when I was growing up to see this film and thinking it was just the most incredible thing in the world, to see these animatronic dinosaurs that I believed were probably real and that they had found some way to capture and film them. Now, I remember when I was watching this movie that I felt this radical sense of awe. I was absolutely enthralled. I loved that I was seeing one of my favorite things come to life like it was out of a book. Now, I want you to know that when I watched it the other day, there was a major contrast between Ace and I this viewing. He soaked up every second. He was in awe. I was constantly distracted. I was no longer fascinated by the enormous size of those creatures on the screen. Texting, emails, random trips to the refrigerator, I was distracted. I constantly drew my attention away. Now don't get me wrong, the movie still had a couple fun moments for me, but the awe was all gone. Now there's a subtle but genuine danger in the way that you listen to a sermon about a familiar text, like the one I'm about to preach to you. Isaiah chapter 6 is either the most well-known or at least the second most well-known passage in the entire book of Isaiah. It is designed to bring you to a point of awestruck wonder and astonishment at the magnificence of God. But the danger is that you might respond to God's word the way that I responded to Jurassic Park. I've seen this already. I've heard this before. Sure, I'll take the ride again, but there's nothing new for me here. As we circle around the scriptures today, it should result in awe. Your jaw should proverbially be on the pavement. Like Isaiah, you should encounter afresh the thrice holy King of heaven. Now, I know that we have not done this for quite some time, but I would like to ask that considering our text this morning, if you would stand with me as I read Isaiah 6 for us. This is the word of the Lord. This is his very word to us. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You may be seated as I pray for us. O Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, that today you would give us a radical sense of who you are, that we would understand more clearly exactly who we are in relation to a holy God. Lord, I pray that just like Isaiah, that those who are entrapped in sin would come to the very end of themselves and see their need for absolute forgiveness. Lord, I pray that right now your name would be lifted high and that Jesus would be preeminent. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our approach to understanding this text today is going to be very, very simple. Point number one, the context. Point number two, the Christ. Point number three, the cure. And point number four, the commissioning. We begin with point one, the context. The introduction to this chapter informs us that the vision occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. This is much more than just a historical marker to identify the date of this occurrence. Uzziah's death correlates directly to Isaiah's experience. Uzziah was a king in Israel, and if I had to guess, I would assume that most of you don't know his biography very well. Uzziah was a king who served for 52 years. That's a long time compared to most kings in the Old Testament or even today. And scripture tells us that he started off as a good king. Second Chronicles 26 verses 4 through 5 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, as long as he sought the Lord... God gave him success. But Uzziah did not always walk uprightly. Eleven verses later we read, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah was not permitted to do this. He was a king, not a priest. But he determined that he was going to do what he was commanded not to do. Why? Because Uzziah had lost his awe of God. There was no reverential fear of God. He disobediently marched right into the temple 
and began to burn that incense himself. He wanted no mediator. He wanted to bypass the priest who was to mediate on his behalf. And the Lord caused leprosy to immediately break out right in the middle of his forehead so that it would be seen in the presence of all of the priests. And then he could no longer serve as the king over the people. He was still functionally, or still officially the king, but functionally that power moved to his son. He had to be moved to a summer home in the countryside where he could no longer do anything in command of his people. He was removed because of his sin. He was removed because this man had no business being in the presence of God. He could no longer serve the Lord like he was supposed to because he had given away his ministry as king by usurping the role of the priest. Soon after, he died of his disease. Now Isaiah was caught up into the heavenly temple of the Lord. How much greater a place must this be? And he was experiencing this moment, and he was most certainly aware he had no business being in that room. There is no way he has the right to stand there before this holy God. And the more he saw, the more clear it became to him, he was unworthy even to speak. Now as we consider this text, you will notice that it destroys part of Isaiah. The proud part of Isaiah is gone. He never operates the same way again. He cannot unsee what he sees in this text. You can forget a movie about genetically recreated dinosaurs. Big deal. But what blasphemy is it when we experience God and then we fade back into life as if it's business as usual? Which brings us to point number two. Now that we know the context, let's consider the Christ. In the vision, Isaiah finds himself in the heavenly temple. Now, what is a temple? A temple is a place you go to worship. And in Jerusalem, there was a temple where the people of Judah were supposed to go to worship the Lord. But unlike the earthly temple where Isaiah was used to going, this heavenly temple contained God in a visible form. He could see his presence. The Lord's throne was like nothing you can find on earth. I remember as a young boy, I was about eight years old, going to a place in Tulsa, Oklahoma to see the treasure of the czars on display. It was a, an entire museum dedicated to the Russian power and wealth. And the thing that caught my attention the most was something I had never seen before. It's when I walked into a room and saw a throne, this massive magisterial chair. Who cares? It's just a glorified lazy boy. But there is something about standing in front of a throne like that that emanates authority, that emanates power. Who dare stand before me while I sit in this authority? That is what Isaiah sees when he comes into the room. He, he finds a throne that is high and elevated, lifted up above all other earthly thrones. And he sees a place that is unlike any other as it is filled with the train of the Lord's garment. What in the world does that mean? In those days, if you were wealthy, or if you had a lot of power, it meant that you had a lot of servants. And one of the ways that they would show off how many servants they had is they would have long robes that would follow them, and the servants would have to walk behind them and carry them. The longer your robe, the more servants you had, the more power you must have. The more wealth 
you must have. The train of his robe filled the entirety of the temple. This God is not lacking in any power, in any wealth, or in any deserving of servitude. This king is all-powerful. It symbolizes his beauty and his power. This king is master of all, and he should rightly be served by every single one of us who walk behind and carry the train of his robe. And it is here that we are introduced to a kind of angel, an angel that is found nowhere else by name in the scripture. This should catch your attention. These guys look different than any other Old Testament example of an angel or angelic being. These are the seraphim, and they're seemingly swarming around him in a dance of worship around the throne like a bunch of hummingbirds would around a lily. But notice the main thing that these six-winged angels are doing. First, they are covering their faces and their feet. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen my feet. Um, many people who have refer to them lovingly as hobbit feet. Feet are not beautiful. In those days, if you were in the presence of somebody glorious, you would not show them your feet. You would cover them. Now, these angels had probably never experienced dust in their life, yet they covered their feet out of reverence for their king. And not only that, they cover also their faces. Consider the fact that these are not beings like us. These angels were not consumed with sin. There was nothing that they had done that would cause a separation between them and God. They are not wicked. They are not evil. These are holy, undefiled angels. Yet not even these beings could bear to gaze into the face of the pure, powerful, holy God. These angels are not like us. Yet even they have better sense than to stare into the brightness of His glory. They cannot uncover their eyes. They would not risk a glimpse of unfiltered glory beaming from the king who was seated on that throne. Does this not highlight to you even more greatly the shocking reality that we will be embraced by the Lord? That when we enter into that heavenly realm, we will see him face to face? That he will allow us with unveiled faces to experience his glory? And that even now, we are seeing His glory presented to us by the Word of God. The second thing that the seraphim were doing was singing to the Lord. Now consider their song. They said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's a simple song. It sounds so basic. A child could memorize this. Why is it that the angels who have all eternity to write songs are writing something this Simplistic. These lyrics are so obvious. Why have they never just continued to make up new, amazing words to say? It's because these words represent the very essence of God. God is holy. But that alone is not enough to press home the point. He is holy, holy. And even that is not enough to say who He is. He is holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, there is no greater way to emphasize something than to repeat it. This is not just a way to grab attention, although it is that. It's also a way to magnify the weight and significance of what is being said. In English, we have the way of saying good, better, best. 
They don't have this kind of step-up methodology in the Hebrew language. It is good, or it is, it is good, good. Or it is good, good, good. And if you were to call something good, 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 it means it is the absolute pinnacle of good. And here, Kent Hughes explains really well in his commentary, he says, it isn't one plus one plus one, it is perfection times perfection times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes him absolutely, even from sinless angels. His holiness is simply his godness in all of his holy attributes and works and ways. He is not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous exponentially. End quote. Now you'll find no other place in the whole Bible where this threefold repetition occurs in this manner. This is God's way of helping us notice that this is of extreme importance. Holiness is not just another one of God's attributes, as if we could diminish the attributes to something small. It is the essence of His being that permeates and defines all of His other attributes. His love is a holy love. He pours out wrath with holy justice. Anything in creation is different than Him. He is unique and separate and pure, undefiled, unlike everything else. He is in a completely different category of anything visible or invisible. But God is not confined to a single room. His glory cannot be contained. All of creation is filled with His glory. And though the world might hate Him and reject Him, they cannot suppress His glory from bursting forth. Every created thing is screaming out, Look to my Creator! From the stars above us to the cells that make up our bodies, we are being told constantly, God is good. God is awesome. God is there. Look to Him. Paul Tripp says in his book called Awe, God created an awesome world. And God intentionally loaded that world with amazing things to leave you astounded. The carefully air-conditioned termite mound in Africa, the tart crunchiness of an apple, the explosion of thunder, the beauty of an orchid, the interdependent systems of the human body, the inexhaustible pounding of the ocean waves, and thousands upon thousands of other created sights, sounds, touches, and tastes. God designed all of them to be awesome and He intended you to be daily amazed. Here's the problem. We get amazed at the stuff, and we forget the one who made them. All of them are designed to give us awe of the Creator. And as Isaiah was looking into something more intense than the sun at point-blank range, then the entire room began to shake. Verse 4 says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Heaven itself cannot contain or withstand the voice of the king. When he speaks, the strongest parts of the heavenly temple are quaking, and the places that appear unmovable are shaken to their core. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory who speaks and all of heaven trembles? Consider Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees in John chapter 12. Jesus quotes a later part of this chapter, to these Pharisees, and he does so to reveal their hearts, it is then that John adds this little editorial 
atom bomb that he drops randomly into this middle of this passage. John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Who is it that Isaiah was viewing in that vision? This is not the Father seated on the throne. There is never a physical manifestation of the Father in all of Scripture. Isaiah saw Jesus. Now consider this. Jesus did not have to leave heaven and live as a man in order to pass some heavenly exam to reach full godhood. Have you guys heard the story of Hercules from ancient mythology? He had to pass all of these tests to prove that he was a god, to be worshipped by the people. Well, he's a pagan failure. He is no real god. The real god of the universe doesn't have to prove himself to anyone. He did not have to come and pass any test or examination. He was God before he was born in Bethlehem. He was worthy of worship and honor and praise before he was ever, as one historical uh, scholar once put it, God with a belly button. Jesus is worthy of worship. He is God. He was God then, and he will always be God. So now that we've identified this king as Jesus, Consider how Isaiah was feeling about all of this in point number three, the cure. Verse five says, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is devastated. He is absolutely distraught. This is not a positive, encouraging worship experience. This is shocking him to his core. Last week, we covered the chapter of six woes. We considered Isaiah chapter 5 and all six woes that are present. But here is the seventh. Woe is me, Isaiah cried. He is screaming out, I am lost. If he could have ended his own existence at that very moment, he would have done so without hesitation. But why? Because two incompatible realities were true. First, he was sinner who dwelt in the midst of sinners. Secondly, we see that he was standing in the presence of a holy God. These are incompatible events. He singles out his lips, probably as a reference to dishonesty, careless conversation, possibly even blasphemous language. And by dwelling amongst it, the text suggests that he has lived in tacit approval of such language, whether by simply knowing it was wrong and refusing to attack it, or by cheering them on, we're not sure. But not only was he sinful, he was standing before the one who is sinless. Sin cannot survive in God's presence. Something has to give. Now, if you're a Christian, you should identify really well with what Isaiah is saying. If you are saved, it is because at some point you had a glimpse of the glory of God. And that small glimpse that came to you through the gospel was enough to shake you and cause you to fall down and say, Woe is me, I am undone. You recognized, I am a sinner, whatever your sin might be. You realize I have no business being in the presence of a holy God. In that moment, you realize how immeasurably unworthy of God's love you really are. You notice that you deserve punishment eternally for your sins. 
And that is the terror of conviction that was eviscerating Isaiah's conscience in that moment. And the thing is, Isaiah was right. He was right. He was right. He has no business being there. How is it that he could be in that throne room? Because God was merciful. Because God was merciful to Isaiah. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, maybe you're a theologian out there in the chairs. Maybe you're not. Either way, I think you will agree with me, this is bizarre. What is taking place here is strange. First of all, kids, don't try this at home. Do not put a burning coal on your lips. If you do, you will not be able to speak for some time. But notice that just a few minutes later, Isaiah is speaking normally as if nothing had ever touched his mouth. This indicates that this coal that burnt away his guilt and atoned for his sin cost him nothing. He felt nothing. There was no pain or sensation that came to him. It was completely, absolutely painless. There was nothing he could do to pay for his sins, but someone else fixed it for him without any cost to him. We know on this side of the cross exactly what actually atoned for him. It was not a coal plucked from the fire. The coal has no ability to do anything. The Bible says, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what exactly caused him to be forgiven? As one Old Testament scholar puts it, the Old Testament saints were saved on credit. The New Testament saints are saved on debit. What we see here is that Isaiah's sins were paid for on credit. Jesus was not simply taking away his sins and throwing them out never to be dealt with. Jesus was taking his sins away from him and placing them on himself that he would eventually carry to the cross. Jesus paid for Isaiah's sin. That was the only possible way of eliminating his sin or ours. If you are a Christian, it is only because of what Jesus has done by taking your sin at no cost to you and bringing it out of you and putting it on himself. And not only that, he paid for it. He didn't just take the debt, he paid the debt by dying a death that he did not deserve, yet we did. He experienced the wrath of God in our place, and he gave us his own righteousness. Our negative balance moved to infinite positive because he has given us his own righteousness. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, the one thing you need most is the same thing that Isaiah needed most. He needed atonement. He needed for his sins to be forgiven. That is where you are sitting today if you don't know Jesus. You are going to tremble in a much worse way than he did because if you are standing before the Lord without being forgiven at the time of your death, if you go before that throne room and you stand there guilty, there is nothing God will do to change your destiny. There is nothing God will do to keep you from punishment. Now is the time for forgiveness. Now is the time to hear the word of the Lord and come to him, repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. We read now about this cure, but we continue on and see that it doesn't stop there for Isaiah. After he is now purified, the Lord has a mission for him. Point number four, the commissioning. 
Verse 8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now I want you to notice the triune language that is being used here. He is referring to himself both as an I and a we. And how amazing is it that even before the incarnation, Jesus was already directing and orchestrating his saints for service in his kingdom. The Lord does not need anybody to speak for him. If God desired to, he could come and speak to anyone directly. He did it many times in the Old Testament. He was doing it right now to Isaiah. Yet God graciously chooses to bring heralds into his kingdom to have them proclaim his glory in our own context. In this case, Jesus was raising up a prophet to warn and condemn the people of Judah. And notice the immediate response of Isaiah. When God says, who's going to go? It seems as though Isaiah can't even wait for the sentence to be concluded before he is raising his hand and saying, I'm right here. Send me. I want to be the one who goes. If you are a Christian, that should be your heart. You should say, I want to be the one. Let me be the one to sacrifice. Let me be the one to suffer. Let me be the one to go for you. Is that the cry of your heart? Or are you the one saying, God, please just send anybody else. I just want somebody else to do it. Maybe I'll do something else someday. I'll do, just give me a bigger task, a better task, one that I like more, one that fits my personality. Lord, just give me something else and give this task away. When there's a need in the nursery and you get the email saying, we got lots of babies and not a lot of teachers. Are you the one saying, here I am, send me. If you hear the call to the mission field, there's a need in Italy, Indonesia. Here I am, send me. I'm not saying that everybody is called to go, but you are called to go somewhere. There is no Christian who has ever been saved with no mission before them. Every single one of us has a calling to carry out the call of the gospel in our context. Maybe you are going to be sent to your neighbor, maybe to your coworker, maybe to serve in some capacity of the church. Maybe you will be sent overseas or to be a pastor someday. Whatever it might be, wherever God says, who will go for me, let your heart cry out, I am ready, send me. Whatever it takes, I will do it. Now I'm really thankful for the Shreks in Italy and Rachel in Mexico and Alejandro that we're sending up to Albany. I'm thankful for them and, and I want them to continue on in ministry, but don't think that just because we already have missionaries out there that we don't need more. Listen, I would love for every one of you to be in this congregation for the rest of your lives. I would love that, but I would also love for the Lord to send. What often happens is the Lord takes the best those who have served the best in this place. And he says, you have been faithful with little. May you now be faithful with much. And sends out, please be faithful with little now. But if you feel the call of the Lord to serve in another capacity, in another place, in another part of the world, please do not suppress that. I know many people, friends who are pastors, who have heard this text preached. And it was at that moment that the Lord captured their heart and said, you will serve me in the ministry. I, I don't know exactly what it was that caused me to know that I should be a pastor, but I can tell you that I was five years old when I began declaring that I would be a missionary to the people of Brazil. Why was I doing that? I don't even think I realized Brazil was another country at the time, 
but I was unwavering until the time that I went to Brazil and was eventually deported twice from Brazil, and the Lord redirected my path, and I am now a missionary on Long Island, a place that honestly is more foreign to me than Brazil in many ways. Where God has you, He is going to use you. I want to encourage you, if you are hearing this today, do not suppress the call of the Lord in your life. If you are feeling the Lord call you, begin to pursue that. And if God says no, like I thought I was going to be in Brazil, he will simply deport you if he has to, to say no. Boys and girls, little ones, teenagers, I want to speak to you for just a moment. You can't be a pastor right now. You can't be a missionary right now. But you need to serve Jesus right now. You are never too young to believe the gospel and be saved. You are never too young to give your life wholly to Him. You might not be able to go to Papua New Guinea or Sudan, but you can serve Jesus every day. For kiddos, the best way to serve Jesus is to love and honor and obey your parents. Learn how to serve them well. Serve your, your brothers and your sisters. Serve Jesus by learning the scriptures. Learn all about Him. Serve Him by loving Him more every day. He will work out your future wherever He wants you to be. Kiddos, we love you. The most important thing is not whether you go, because if you miss the first step, you would be going in vain. Little ones, the most important thing is for you to know Jesus and be saved. The most important thing is for you to know that you are a sinner and that your heart is filled with wickedness and that you must Go to the Lord Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. Kiddos, I would love to talk to you more about that. If you are not understanding what I'm saying about the gospel, please talk to your mommy and daddy, and then come please talk to me. I want to share this good news with you. But if the Lord does capture your heart, then say, I will go. Wherever you send me, I will go. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that Isaiah's mission was not an enviable calling. He was sent out to a people that would not listen. Isaiah verses 6, 9, and uh, 10 says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing. Let the words flow into your ears. Keep on hearing. But do not understand. Keep on seeing. But do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. It's like a pencil that you just keep scratching on the paper until eventually there's nothing left but grinding of wood. And he, they, they uh, make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. God did not send Isaiah to convince the people to believe in God. That was not his calling. He was sending Isaiah to harden the hearts of the people in their unbelief. God did not expect the people of Judah to change. This was a kamikaze mission. Isaiah, go out there. They're not going to hear you, but keep going. Maybe you're discouraged sometimes when you go to a friend or a family member and you share the gospel and they shut you down. Maybe you feel like, where's God? Isn't it his job to do some work here? I, I just shared. Listen, God never lets his word come back to him void. Share the gospel, proclaim the good news, and he will produce the work, whether it's a, re a regeneration of the heart or a hardening of the heart. Earlier when I was speaking of John 12, it was this portion of scripture that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees. He quoted this on multiple occasions. They are a perfect example of people who had every bit of evidence necessary 
to know Christ, to know the God who was sitting on that throne. But they were only moved to deeper unbelief. If you're here and you're not saved, hear me carefully. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, do not respond like the Pharisees did. Do not respond like Judah did. Do not let your heart be further hardened. Turn to Him and repent. Today is the day of salvation. After Isaiah heard how the people would reject his preaching, he was rightly concerned. He cried out in verse 11, How long, O Lord? How long? How long am I going to have to do this? Are they going to eventually listen? He said, the Lord said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains in it when it is felled. Then he says this amazing line, the holy seed is its stump. Now Isaiah probably felt this news deep in his stomach. It was like getting punched in the gut. No, Isaiah, it's going to be a long time. They're not going to listen until after I destroy everything. Consider Isaiah's position here. Consider what is being said. His home, his countryside, his very own family is going to be besieged and is going to be taken captive. And all of the things that he previously cared about the most are about to now be on the chopping block of God. God was going to destroy but even in the promise of destruction, there is also the promise of deliverance. The promised seed must come through Judah. So even though the people would be punished, he says the stump will remain. Why? Because that holy, holy, holy God, that king is also the holy seed. Isaiah 6 closes with the promise that the Messiah is on his way. And as we continue through the book of Isaiah, it seems like there's so much condemnation. But in all of it, there is a resonating tone speaking to the children. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He will atone. He is the Holy One. Now, I think this must have given Isaiah great hope. He, he didn't leave that throne room depressed even though he heard that everything he loved before that conversation was coming to an end, he left that conversation and spent the rest of his life proclaiming the goodness of God. He had to deliver a lot of bad news. He had to deliver a lot of bad news. But it was all in order to point to the good news. The king is coming to save. When you share the gospel, you must always share bad news. The problem with so many sermons today and so many gospel presentations today is that they forget that to share the good news you have to share the bad news. You must tell people you are a sinner in a def desperate position before a holy God. If you leave that out, why in the world would they come to Christ for salvation? He had a lot of bad news. You're a sinner, you're standing in judgment, but he had a lot of good news. The punchline of every single verse in this book of Isaiah is Jesus. He is the king coming to save. Now even more, on this side of the cross, should we not be in awe of the king of heaven? This king that we saw high and lifted up on his throne, who voluntarily stepped down from his place of everlasting worship in order to experience life 
as a part of his own creation, to be rejected and to be tormented by the very ones that he designed. He was crucified on a cross that was made out of a tree that he created. He was crucified by people, spit on by people, mocked by people that he knit together in their mother's womb. What humility of this king. This is our king that we are to worship. Church, we must be in awe of the king, not only because of his holiness, but also because of his servanthood. He has displayed love for us beyond anything we could measure. Lift your eyes to the one who atoned for you. Lift your eyes, church, to the heavens. Lift your eyes to Jesus, the holy, holy, holy God. And may the cry of your heart in response always be, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to serve us and to love us and to die for us and to pay for our sin and to give us his righteousness. Lord, we thank you that he is again in heaven, ruling and reigning, where he will be worshipped eternally, not only by the angels, but also by the redeemed that he has come to save. Lord, I pray that every person here would be shaken like Isaiah was shaken, that every one of us here would be convinced of your glory, that every one of us here would be changed by your holiness, that every one of us here would say, here I am, send me. Lord, may the gospel propel us now and be the engines that move us forward in ministry. May we serve you all the days of our lives. To God be the glory. Amen.